Welcome to the All Saints Community Church Weekly Sermon Podcast. We are a community of worship and formation on mission with Jesus. We are committed to being rooted in the scriptures and the historic Christian faith and to kingdom life in the power of the Holy Spirit. As you listen, may you be encouraged and empowered to know the Lord Jesus and make him known. For more information on who we are, visit allsaintsokc.org or follow us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter at ASCCOKC. I want to open up with uh, just a time of prayer. I mean, approaching Scripture is not a light thing, but it is a beautiful thing. It's pretty amazing that we've been gifted something that actually becomes a moment of encounter with the God who crafted the universe. And so it's pretty cool that we get to open it up today and meet Him face to face. So why don't we take a moment to pray? Isaiah writes that in the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lofty, and the hem of His robe filled the temple. Seraphs were in attendance above him. Each had six wings, and two they covered their faces, and with two they covered their feet, and with two they flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. The pivots on the threshold shook at the voices of those who called, and the house filled with smoke. Lord Jesus, we are your people. We are the sheep of your pasture, and today we join with the angels, archangels, saints, all those who have gone before us who are around your throne, and we declare holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, the one who was, the one who is, and the one who forever shall be. You are our King. You are our Lord. You are our God, and we put our hearts before you today. Lord, as the foundations of the temple and where you were sitting were shaken, so may this place be shaken today with your glory and the goodness that you come to bring to your people. Shake what can be shaken. Establish what needs to be established. And more than anything else, help us to see you and to cry out in worship to you today. We honor you, sir, and we bless your name. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Well, as Brock said, today we will be looking at John chapter 2, verses 13 through 22. And if you didn't know, this is the third Sunday of Lent, and this is actually the passage that is often read on this specific Sunday. And Lent is an opportunity for us to be able to peel back all the distractions to look into the face of our King and to turn toward Him with a heart of repentance and a heart of longing. And so hopefully today, as we look at this passage, we will be drawn to that King. And so if you need a Bible, there are some in the pews. Um, We also will have the passage up here on the screen. So John chapter 2, starting in verse 13. It says this, The Passover of the Jews was near, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and the money changers seated at their tables. 
Making a whip of cords, he drove all of them out of the temple, both the sheep and the cattle. He also poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. He took those who were selling the doves. He told those who were selling the doves, take these things out of here. Stop making my father's house a marketplace. His disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then said to him, what sign can you show us for doing this? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, this temple has been under construction for 46 years and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. This is the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Zeal for your house will consume me. When John, the writer of this gospel, is reflecting on this specific event, these are the words that stuck out to him from scripture. Zeal for your house will consume me. Many of us in this room are probably familiar with this account, Jesus walking in and cleansing the temple. It's actually one of the few events that are recorded in all four gospels that we have. But interestingly enough, John actually messes with some things here. He does something different than the other three gospel writers are doing. If you ever take time to read Matthew, Mark, and Luke and their account of Jesus cleansing the temple, you'll notice that it takes place at a very different time in Jesus's ministry. It actually takes place at the end, after his triumphal entry. It's not long before he's crucified after this event, but John places it in a different part. It's almost like he saw this moment, he remembered this moment, and he said, you know, there's something important about this moment. And so he plucked it from the end of Jesus' story, and he throws it at the beginning. Now, to do that, to shift the order of events, means that there must be something very significant that you want people to see which means that this event for John is actually describing something essential to what he wants us to see and know about the person of Jesus and what he came to do. And it's kind of thrown in an awkward moment. Jesus had just gotten done um, turning water into wine at the wedding in Cana, pretty fun event. <laughs> Jesus was at a party and he made the party even better. But this moment was not something that everyone got to witness. It was seen by his disciples and the few people that obeyed his command, but it was not something that was publicly demonstrated to everybody. But this event is the first public demonstration that Jesus does in front of everybody. Kind of a weird thing to do when you're starting out in ministry. How would it feel today if Brock were to come in and turn everything over and just say, hey, I'm starting a new term as pastor. <laughs> How would people feel about that? But that is essentially what Jesus is doing. He's walking into the house of God, and he's disrupting everything around him, but he's doing it for a specific purpose. And when John sees what's happening, he goes to this obscure passage in Psalm 69, a psalm, by the way, that no one saw as a messianic prophecy. 
No one looked at this psalm and said, hey, this embodies what the Messiah is going to be like, but John does. And as a matter of fact, Psalm 69, the psalm that he's quoting here is the most quoted psalm in the Gospel of John, meaning there's something essential going on here. And he plucks this phrase, zeal for your house has consumed me. And so I want to focus in on this. What is John looking at? What is John getting at when he tells us it was zeal for the house of God that has consumed Jesus? And so let's focus in on this word zeal for a moment. When I say the word zeal, what is it that comes to your mind? For each and every one of us, it may be something different. We just came out of the Super Bowl a few weeks ago, so there may have been some pretty zealous fans <laughs> that were there for that game. But the early church had something specific in mind when they thought of the word zeal. And I have an image that I want to put up here. It's kind of a different one, but hopefully we can get it up. So, how many of you have seen this before? Okay, a couple of people. I didn't think a lot of people would. So this is an image that was used by the church in the West for quite a while. And if you notice, there's a bird here with three chicks, and it's spread its arms out as a way of covering and protecting the chicks from the serpent at the bottom underneath the nest. Now, there's a cross here which shows us that this image is declaring the gospel in some way. Legend has it that a pelican, if its chicks are hungry enough and there is no food the pelican will actually pick at its own chest and feed its chicks its own blood and flesh in order to keep them alive. The early church, when they heard of this image and when they saw this, they thought, Jesus. <laughs> this is what zeal for his people did to him. It caused him to lay down himself for the purpose of offering himself as food and drink for his people so that they could know life. This is the picture of zeal that the church has embraced ever since its beginning. And it's this idea of zeal that's going to be present in what Jesus is accomplishing here at the temple. Now, there's a slide with the definition of zeal that I want to put up here. So the word zeal itself means this, a passionate fervor for a person or a cause. It means I'm going to do something significant, maybe even radical, because I have a longing or a passion or a love for a person or a cause itself. And there is a phrase that shows up in the Old Testament that's really important, and it's this, the zeal of the Lord. And it shows up in some very significant spots. But every time that it shows up, it's talking about God's saving power to and for his people. Enemies would come against the nation of Israel and a prophet would come forward and declare, hey, God's going to deliver you and it is the zeal of the Lord that will accomplish this. But the phrase, the zeal of the Lord, stands out first and foremost in this passage from Isaiah 9-7. And it says this, he will establish and uphold his kingdom with justice and righteousness from this time onward and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. 
This passage is part of a pretty famous passage that we read usually around Christmas time that talks about the coming of Jesus as wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And the prophet rounds out this whole prophecy by saying this, it is the zeal of the Lord that will accomplish what the Messiah is coming to do. Meaning it's God's longing, it's God's passion for his people that will go to work in order to establish his purposes for them. And he'll do whatever it takes to make sure that it gets done. Zeal is probably the most radical expression of love we can think of. It makes people do some crazy things. But in Scripture, the zeal of the Lord is the place where God's love and his justice meet in order to accomplish his good purpose for his people. We oftentimes have a hard time holding the righteousness or the judgment of God in tension with our view of the love of God. But what if they're two sides of the same coin? What if God's purifying work, his judgment in and among his creation is actually his love at work doing something that is beyond anything we can think or imagine? And that on the other side of that judgment is a purification that leads us deeper into the life of God. The Eastern Church used to look at the love of God as a consuming fire. The more we turn in toward it, the more we are purified. The more we turn away from it, the more we experience its pain but it's all love. (laughs) It's all his goodness at work, and this is the zeal of the Lord. It is his justice. It is his love going to work to accomplish his purpose. And so when John sees Jesus stepping into the temple, he sees the zeal of the Lord at work. Jesus is consumed with something, and it's longing for his people. And for John, this establishes the very ministry of Jesus. What is he doing? Everything that he does is for the purpose of purifying, loving, and leading creation into a new way of life. The zeal of the Lord will accomplish this. But what is he zealous for? Well, the passage says this. He's zealous for his house. Zeal for your house will consume me. Now, the house of the Lord, of course, is an image of the temple. That's what it was referred to. It was the place where the people of God would come and they would worship God through sacrifice and through other means. It was the place where they felt they had some level of contact and union with him. It was the image of a home. But the temple itself was only a reflection of something else that had been there from the beginning. God had wanted to create a home where he could dwell personally with the very good creation that he had made. And if we were to go all the way back to the book of Genesis and to the Garden of Eden, we could see a temple being built, and that was creation. The actual structure of creation in Genesis Genesis chapter 1 and 2 is very similar to the way a temple was described when it was being built. In Genesis 1, we have three days where God builds something, and we have another three days where God fills it with something. And then in Genesis chapter 2, we have God planting a garden. And so I actually have a slide that kind of illustrates this. And so we have creation, which is the temple. We have the garden, which is the holy place. This was going past just the main entrance of the temple into a deeper place. But then in the middle of the garden, we're told that he plants a tree, and this is the tree of life, and this was the place where God was meant to dwell with humanity. This is the Holy of Holies. 
And in the Holy of Holies, he places humanity and he commissions them to care for what he has made. Basically to take the glory that he shares with them, the very breath of life that he breathed into him. And he says, now breathe this everywhere. This was the commission for man and woman in the very beginning. They were a priesthood. But then something happens in God's temple, in God's good creation, in God's home. Something slithers in. And that something that slithers in begins to whisper something into the ears of God's good priests. And he begins to bring division. He sows doubt and accusation. Do you think God really has the best for you? Did God really say this? Maybe he's hiding something from you. He was sowing poison into their own ears, and it was in drinking in that poison that man and woman finally turned their back on their good God and their creator, and now all of a sudden they step outside of the home. They want to become God themselves, but in becoming God themselves, they actually turn their power over to the influence of the serpent. And the serpent goes from an influence to a power that reigns over God's good creation. And it's a power that wants to grip it in its own jaws, to sink its fangs deep into it, and to continue to ooze its poison into every fiber of what God loves. The serpent hates the good creator. Now, if you know the story, God goes on to establish another home, a tabernacle and a temple. He creates for himself a people. He sets them apart, and he puts a home there. But if you're familiar with the story, the poison of the serpent remains. The priesthood of the tabernacle, the priesthood of the temple continued to turn away from their good God. And the presence of God leaves his own home. And they go through a cycle of that home being destroyed and rebuilt, destroyed and rebuilt. And by the time we get to Jesus, we have a temple that has been built for 46 years, but the presence of God hasn't been there for 46 years until this day. And on this day, God in flesh walks into the room. He walks into his home, and he wants to make his home right. Zeal for your house. When John sees Jesus walking into the temple, he doesn't just see Jesus getting angry at something. He sees the God of the universe, the one who formed and fashioned creation, the Word made flesh, coming to make his home among us, stepping into the temple in the center of his own people in order to face the serpent head on and drive him out. This is what is happening in John 2. This whole thing is a microcosm event exemplifying what Jesus is doing in his life, death, burial, and resurrection. He's taking the serpent by the neck, absorbing its own poison, and casting it out from his home. Why? Because he's that zealous for what he loves. And so when Jesus walks into the temple, he sees the, those who are exchanging money and, and, and the, those who are selling bulls and, and doves for the purpose of sacrifice. And he sees how this system has been corrupted and separated people from God. And he says, this is enough. And he forms a whip. John's the only one who records this part. 
He forms a whip and he begins to go about like a madman driving him out. Why? Because he doesn't like separation. Quit keeping my people from me. And he may be saying that to the money changers, but in all reality, he's saying it to the serpent. Keep away. In the Gospel of John, this is a very real thing. John, interestingly, does not record any exorcisms that Jesus did. He's not casting demons out of a lot of people, but there is an exorcism that is happening. And it's the ruler of this world being cast out of God's good earth. In John chapter 12, he says that this world has been judged, and along with it, the ruler of it, and I've cast him out. This is what is happening here. The God of all creation is taking the serpent as the new Adam by the neck, and he's throwing him out of his garden. How does he do this? That brings us to the word consume. Now, before we come to this slide, I want to go back to Psalm 69.9. This is the verse that John is quoting when he says the disciples remembered this event. And it's an interesting passage. It says this, it is zeal for your house that has consumed me. The insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. That doesn't sound very fun. If you were to read the totality of Psalm 69, it's actually not a very fun psalm until the end. The end kind of takes a turn. But through most of this psalm, we see the writer talking about how the blame and the reproach of God himself has fallen on him very simply because he has a passion for God's house. His enemies are coming against him. They're using words of accusation. And interestingly enough, those enemies are actually God's own people. They're not someone outside. They're not an opposing force or army. But day after day after day, something has been weighing him down because all of a sudden, those who think that this man is a fool are attacking him, so much so that he makes a statement, do not let those who love you be put to shame because of me. The blame, the reproach that people want to put on your house has now fallen on me. I fasted and it becomes something that, that, that is just a, a burden for me. I've done all the right things and there's no peace that's come out of it. And then he comes to this point. It is zeal for your house that has consumed me. And we can take this one of two ways. We can take this to mean that zeal has, has become so much of a thing for him that all his purpose in life is centered toward caring for the house of God. But there's another way of looking at this, and I think this comes into play in what we're talking about, and that is zeal for your house has literally consumed me. I'm wasting away because I'm zealous for your house. I'm zealous for your house and people are attacking me. I'm zealous for your house and they're throwing reproach on me. I'm doing what you've asked me to do. I'm being faithful to my covenant with you. And this is the result. The insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. When John sees this passage, he thinks of Jesus. Because interestingly enough, the way that the God of the universe comes into his home, comes into the garden, comes into the temple, and casts out the serpent is being consumed by the very things that have been attacking his own people. 
When asked what sign he would give in order to prove what he was doing, Jesus says this, tear down this temple and rebuild it in three, and I'll rebuild it in three days. And what they didn't know is that he was talking about his death and his resurrection. What is the zeal of the Lord that has consumed him? And you can take it to that next slide. John frames this entire event of the cleansing of the temple in light of the crucifixion. Notice that it happens during Passover, which is the same holiday, Jewish holiday, that Jesus would be crucified on. This is foreshadowing him as the Passover lamb that would bring an end to all sacrifice for sin, which, by the way, is another reason why he's driving out the bulls and the birds. We don't need these anymore. I'm here. He makes a whip out of cords. This is actually foreshadowing his own scourging. He would take the whipping, the beating that we want to impose on each other and that the serpent has brought on his own creation. He takes that himself. And then Jesus' death and resurrection is used as the sign, not a sign, but the sign of him driving out the serpent and creating a new temple. If we think back at that image that we looked at at the beginning, he is the pelican <laughs> who's sitting there covering his chicks and giving of himself in order for them to live. This is how zeal for his house has consumed him. Jesus becomes the psalmist who takes on the reproach of God's house. Jesus becomes the one who soaks in the venom that the serpent has been sowing into creation from the beginning for the very purpose of making clean what has been distorted by the enemy and the ruler of this world, the very one who wants to destroy what God loves. This is how zeal for his house has consumed him. This is the cleansing of the temple. Let me sit for a moment. It's really easy for us to look at a passage like this and to think of people or groups that fit into the category of those that were within the temple the day Jesus cleansed it. It's really easy for us to see the things we think need to be cleansed by his zeal. But he wants to take ownership of us. And as much as other people may need the cleansing, so do we. The poison of the serpent that is seen in Psalm 69, which is quoted here, is the poison of accusation. It's the poison of division. 
It's the poison of turning one person God loves against another person God loves. And the more we do that, the more we begin to hate each other. And in, the, in, in a specific moment, we all of a sudden become an enemy to the love of God that he wants to use to make all things new. The cleansing of the temple is a removal of the poison that pits me against you. And in the moment I begin to look at you and I begin to see something that I need to condemn, I should realize that in that moment I'm under the influence of the serpent. But what if the king of glory were to walk into this room today and in his zeal bring us in our knees to one another and call us to a love that is radical so that the world out there can see it too. It is really easy for us to look outside of these doors and to see things that look blatantly demonic, but if we're only looking at that, we fool ourselves because the serpent is crafty and he still tries to make his way in. And the scary part is that the poison that he, that he invokes here, the poison that he, he filters into God's own people is a lot more subtle than what we see out there. But the purifying fire of God is something that starts at home. It's something that starts here first. It's scary. It's not fun. But boy, is it good. And it's where life comes. And it brings something new. The cleansing of the temple wasn't the end. Because in the end of all things, there will be a new temple. And that is Jesus himself. God will dwell with man. They will not be separated from him any longer. And all of creation will become the house of God. I'm almost done. But I want to read a promise that comes at the end of Psalm 69. Is that okay? And maybe we can end with that. This is the good stuff. Well, all of this has been good, but th th this is the fun stuff to hear. So Psalm 69, most of it has actually been pretty heavy, but then in verse... 30, and I don't have it on the slides, but you can just hear it, or if you want to turn there, you can. It says this. This is the result, by the way, of the zeal of the Lord consuming Jesus. I will praise the name of God with a song. I will magnify him with thanksgiving. This will please the Lord more than an ox or a bull with horns or hooves. Let the oppressed see it and be glad. You who seek God... Let your hearts be revived. For the Lord hears the needy and does not despise his own that are in bonds. Let heaven and earth praise him, the seas and everything that moves in them. For God will save Zion and rebuild the cities of Judah, and his servants shall live there and possess it. The children of his servants shall inherit it, and those who love his name shall live in it. In other words, when the zeal of the Lord shows up, his cleansing love and fire, 
you better believe that there's something coming on the other end that leads his people into a place of rejoicing because the needy are heard, the broken are seen, and restoration begins to happen. God births something that looks a lot like what he's going to do in the end because he's not content with seeing his people as a broken priesthood, and he's not content with the world being under the influence of the one who hates him. He's coming to make all things new. And it is the zeal of the Lord that will accomplish it. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, For I received from the Lord what I also handed on to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night in which he was betrayed, took a loaf of bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body that is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. The same way he took the cup also after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the zeal that you've demonstrated toward us, your infinite and compelling love that cleanses us and makes us makes us new. Lord, as we take the bread and the cup, as we receive prayer today, and even as we go from this place, may we do so in the presence of your goodness, and may we receive the life that you desire to give. In Jesus' name, amen.